And we welcome you to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. As we approach the end of June and the end of Pride Month, here is another pertinent morning show interview from the archives, which was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2017. I'm very pleased to be able to speak for the next few minutes with Susan Stryker about her uh, fascinating book called Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution. This is actually a, a revised edition of a book which was initially published in 2008. And in recent years, so much has happened with the transgender movement that uh, a revision or an update was was very much uh, necessary. And uh, it is a story, however, not uh, rooted in the present, uh, but that also, as the, the title suggests, uh, explores the the rich and and truly compelling history. Uh, of 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 transgendered uh, the community and uh, the long fight for uh, equal rights and and equal access uh, to the most basic sorts of of, of matters of, of of life and health and happiness. Uh, this book is published by Seal Press. Susan Stryker is associate professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona, and founding co-editor of TSQ Transgender Studies Quarterly. As she is an award-winning uh, writer, and uh, uh, this book, again, is titled Transgender History. It is the revised edition. Uh, Professor Susan Stryker, we welcome you to the morning show. We're glad to be here. I was so happy to be able to explore this book. It, uh, By the way, this interview comes on the heels of several others that we have, have done uh, on this very important topic. Uh, even after having conducted several interviews about this, I, I must confess to to feeling trepidation when it comes to the matter of of terms. And in your book, the first chapter, uh, over forty pages, is devoted just to the matter of terminology, which is uh, of course very very complicated, and uh, and it has evolved over time. Uh, can you say a word about uh, the complexity of the terminology? And even when we limited ourselves to the word transgender, which you say is a word whose meanings are still under construction. Uh, What sort of encouragement would you give to those of us who who still feel uh, somewhat intimidated uh, just by the vast uh, universe of terminology that is part of this movement? Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, you just, you know, everybody should just treat trans people as people, you know, that... um, you know, we you don't necessarily have to understand a person to just you know treat them with the basic you know sort of you know human respect and you know kindness that you would expect for yourself in the world. And I think it's also okay to just ask people you know in a in a respectful way if there's something that you don't understand about them. Um, you know, I think. Um, that you know, there is like a huge proliferation of, of language around transgender topics. And to me, you know, I, I know it can be kind of intimidating from the outside, but what feels really um, interesting to me is that it, it's kind of an example of language responding to try to address, you know, the actual complexity of the world, that there's something that's changing about the ways that people live their lives and think of their identities, and language is kind of like struggling to keep up. You know, it's, it's almost like 
it's almost like poetry, you know, that you can, um, you know, we tend to use language in a really sort of utilitarian way, uh, you know, just to communicate. But sometimes language needs to try to reach beyond that, you know, to try to grasp something new and fresh. And, you know, I kind of look at the proliferation of terms about gender as a kind of, you know, almost as a kind of poetry. Um, So, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I just want to say it can't be daunting to come from, you know, the outside and, you know, try to figure out what, you know, kids today are calling themselves and what, you know, what, um, you know, what, just, you know, how people think about their gender could be very complicated. But, um, you know, just just listen, you know, and, and don't uh, necessarily feel like you need to know everything in advance. It's okay to, like, slow down, be a little confused sometimes, and just sort of keep in mind that, at, you know, at, at, at base, we should all just be trying to figure out ways to be kind and respectful to each other. Hmm. Uh, you are a, a professor at, a, at uh, the University of Arizona, and uh, you are an associate professor of gender and women's studies. And I would assume that uh, most of the people that walk through the doorway of your classroom are there at least to some extent because they very much want to be with some some sort of interest in the in the topic at hand. Uh, that being said, I wonder how you would characterize, uh, in general, uh, in terms of your students, and also in terms of the young people of of the transgender community, uh, how much interest there is in the history that you chronicle so thoroughly in this really fascinating book. Uh, do you think there is sufficient interest in this history? Oh yeah, and I, I actually see you know see more and more interest. It, it's um, um, you know the reason is there was a second edition of the book brought out. You know, it's not only that, as you mentioned in your introduction, there's been a, you know a, just a huge amount of social change around transgender issues in the past decade that you know really needed to be you know, chronicled as well, excuse me, Um, but that book was actually starting to sell better. It was an older book that was actually starting to sell better over time, which sort of told the publishers that it's like there was a growing interest in the topic. And, you know, I, I think for a lot of younger people today, it's like, you know, young people in general often don't have an awareness of history. And trans issues feel so current and timely. I think it's actually um, a pleasant surprise for a lot of people to go like, "Oh wait, you know, we've we've been around for a long time. These issues are not new issues." And that you know, there's a lot of um, um, people take comfort in knowing that they're not the first, that they're not alone, that they come from a history of struggle, they have ancestors on whose backs they stand, you know, all, all of that, you know, like that they they, they come from a people. Uh, and so, you know, I think, I think that there is a, a great deal of, you know, interest in and desire for a history of trans people, and I'm really glad that I've been able to, you know, at least tell a little bit of that, um, of that history in my short and accessible introductory book on the topic. Hmm. In the prologue of the book, you uh, you make mention of of your own personal story, which of course is, uh, begins as 
being born with the the gender assigned to you of male, or it's probably a more graceful way to put it than that. But mm-hmm. but uh, but you say that from your very earliest memory, you felt uh, feminine identified. Uh, can you just say a word more about uh, what your own journey has been in this regard, and how important that is to the work you have done now for many many years? Uh, as a uh, as a historian and and someone working from an academic perspective uh, in 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 this community and and within this history, um, sure. You know, I you know as as you just mentioned, um, you know, I don't know how to explain this. I don't know where it comes from. I am sort of agnostic about causes. You know, it's like I don't know why I always felt transgendered, but I always did. And, you know, for me, it was a question of, you know, kind of quietly watching and trying to figure out what could be done about my situation, you know, not wanting to, you know, bring any kind of, um, you know, grief or conflict upon me. I was sort of very cautious in how I, you know, sort of proceeded about um, sort of coming coming out to the world as the person that I felt myself to be. But, you know, it, it really was something very, very deep, innate. You know, it's like I don't know any other way of being. It's how I have always been. So, you know, there's just uh, some self-acceptance involved. It's like, well, you know, this is how you are. This is who you are. You know, like the old cliche, you know, sort of, you know, dance with who brought you to the ball. And, uh, you know, I came into the world as a trans person, and that's how I'm living my life. Um, that perception does influence my, you know, my intellectual interests and my scholarly research. And I, I'm a curious person. I'm sort of curious, huh, how is it that people like me can even exist? Where do we come from? How does this come about? You know, it's how do we form a sense of who we are as a person? How do we live in certain social roles? So, you know, I think my, my historical and sort of social studies curiosities like it really does come from my own embodied experience um, um, I, um, I I feel like actually when I started um, my PhD studies it's like I was not working on transgender history as my topic I actually wrote my PhD on like early 19th century US religious history um, but um, you know, as I was in my, you know, later 20s starting to transition, you know, from living as a man to living as a woman, um, you know, I, I found out pretty quickly that the world doesn't let trans people do a lot. You know, it's just like we kind of get pigeonholed, we get stereotyped, you know, it's we kind of get treated sometimes as if the only thing we know about is being trans or, you know, it's the first thing people see about us or perceive about us or know about us a lot of times, and you kind of get stuck there. And so, you know, I just tried to make the, make the best of it. You know, I did find, I did find kind of becoming an expert on trans because the world didn't let me be anything other than a trans person. Um, you know, I, I found a lot of, you know, pleasure and uh, a lot of purpose in sort of becoming a, a storyteller of people like me. Um, 
so anyway, it's just my, my, my personal life, you know, what I know from how I, you know, as I say, how, how I live my body in the world and how the world treats me and the things that I know because I walk around in the world as a trans person. I can combine that kind of knowledge with the kind of, you know, sort of formal, scholarly, nerdly, geeky knowledge that, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can develop as an academic. So, you know, I try to bring those two things together. I try to draw insight from my experience, and, uh, but, you know, to then do sort of the scholarship and research to tell a story that's broader than just my personal story. Hmm. Uh, one other personal question, if, if you don't mind, uh, and it relates to a personal experience of my own. Uh, the f- my other life outside of this radio station uh, is as a music professor and a voice teacher primarily. And, uh, and, and in my many years as a voice teacher, I, I have had one transgender voice student. And, uh, it, and she happened to be the first transgender person I had ever knowingly met. Uh, and and got to know her pretty well. And one of the memories of which I'm really haunted was at her her beautiful memorial service where her daughter uh, got up and spoke and said, among other things, uh, that she wishes so much at the time that she had appreciated the courage that it took uh, her, meaning her her mother, she had been her father, but now her mother, to the first time she walked back into her place of employment, which happened to be Snap-on Tools here in Kenosha, the first time she walked back into Snap-on as someone who had transitioned from male to female. And at the time, although the, the, the daughter was fully supportive and loving in every way possible, she did not, in that moment at least, as a relatively young person, really appreciate the scope of courage that it took or, 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 or what a probably frightening moment that was. I mean, she had no idea what kind of welcome was, she was going to be afforded when she walked back into that place of employment. As it turns out, as far as I understand, it was a remarkably warm level of, of acceptance. Uh, uh, but I, I think about that and realize that uh, for many, many of us for whom this is not our reality, we don't begin to understand what that experience must be like. I wonder uh, if you could just say a word about your own experience with those sort of firsts in your life, uh, th- those moments when you are reentering an arena, having transitioned and and what that felt like for you and what it typically feels like for those who who uh, experience a moment like that. Um, well, you know, I would just say that in general, early transition for all trans people is, you know, is a hard time. Um, you know, it's, um, it's when you're at your most vulnerable, I think. You know, it, to, to use a kind of hackneyed, you know, metaphor, it does sort of feel like, you know, you're some kind of, you know, insect going through this, like, stage where you're molting an old skin and, you know, kind of emerging from the husk of, you know, your former self into a newer self. And, you know, it's just an awkward, ungainly, vulnerable time. Uh, but how how people um, treat you, I think, has a lot to do with the kinds of relationships that you've had with them before. 
you know, that the people who love you tend to still love you. Um, you know, you they transition along with you. Um, um, I think if you have good, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have good relationships with people in your workplace, then, you know, those relationships, you know, often tend to be good relationships and that most of the trouble comes from people on the periphery of your world who are offended or, excuse me, or, you know, offended or threatened or, you know, pass some kind of moral judgment, you know, on you or just not particularly aware of, you know, the issues involved. And, you know, that tends to be where the trouble can start, you know, that it, um, uh, and then, you know, public, you know, the public sphere can be, you know, very intimidating for a while. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's, can be kind of a heavy trip. And, you know, it's, it feels very poignant, actually, to, you know, to know when you're in that early stage of transition that you're doing something that feels so profoundly right to you, it's so necessary for you. And at the same time, it's the thing that, like, brings, you know, can bring so much, you know, stigma and opprobrium and, and violence um, and discrimination on you. So it's a very, you know, best of times, worst of times kind of moment. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Susan Stryker, and we are talking about uh, her book, Transgender History, the Roots of Today's Revolution, which has just been released in a second edition. This book first appeared in print back in 2008. Uh, Professor Stryker, at the very outset of your prologue, you write, although the title of this book is simply Transgender History, the subject is both narrower and broader than that. Explain uh, what, what you mean there. Um, well, as I go on to explain in the next paragraph after that, I say it, the book is called Transgender History, but that's the title that the publisher gave it because it was sort of short and pithy. It's really a history of the transgender social movement in the United States primarily since World War II. Uh, there's an earlier chapter where I go over some of the often perplexing the outsider's terminology and lingo that's grown up around trans issues and seems to be growing, you know, more and more, you know, rapidly diverse. Uh, and, you know, I do give some, in an early chapter, um, kind of a long historical overview, you know, sort of the 19th and early 20th centuries. But mostly I focus on post-World War II. So it's, you know, it's a narrower slice of history than, you know, all trans history everywhere in all times. Um, but broader in the sense that, you know, I call the book Transgender History, and that word transgender keeps changing its meanings, which I think can make it a confusing topic sometimes for people who are not close to the community. That, that um, um, transgender in the 90s uh, sort of meant gender diversity, the full spectrum of, you know, possibilities, the whole, you know, the whole, the whole spectrum, the whole rainbow of, of gender, gender different, gender complicated. Uh, but that over time, transgender has kind of come to mean something narrower, um, you know, that it usually means like somebody who 
is assigned male at birth and becomes a woman or assigned female at birth and becomes a man. Um, and that that's sort of a narrower, a narrower, narrower definition of transgender. And, you know, now people will talk about being transgender or being, um, you know, gender nonconforming or gender nonbinary. Um, there's actually a, a, a joke um, in the community that I like, heard years ago. It's like, you know, what's the difference between, you know, gender non-binary people and transgender people? It's like, well, you ask a transgender person if they're a boy or a girl, and they answer yes. And ask a, you know, gender non-binary person if they're a boy or a girl, and they answer no. So <laughs> that, that's how you can tell the difference. So, so um, you know, the, the word transgender has has just changed over time from being um, uh, it's a you know pan gender all gender gender diversity term to coming to mean somebody who quote unquote changes sex so I use the word transgender um, um, so that when I use the word transgender in the title it's like I'm not sort of using it in the narrower sense that it has come to mean now, but I'm using it in that broader sense that it used to have. Right. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm like trying to look at people who have, um, you know, regardless of what they call themselves, whether they say, you know, I'm transgender, I'm transsexual, I'm this, I'm that, I'm non-binary, I'm agender, whatever. It's like I'm looking at ways that um, people who fall outside the social norms of gender um, uh, receive a kind of, you know, um, that they're discriminated against, you know, that it is, um, life can be harder for them. And so, like, I look at the kinds of social movements and political activism that trans and gender nonconforming and non-binary people um, engage in. So, I, you know, I try to tell the bigger story of gender diversity and not just what transgender has come to mean. Right. Uh, and uh, before we dig into a couple of these really fascinating, specific stories of women like Louise Lawrence and Christine Jorgensen and Virginia Prince, who are key figures, um, I wonder if you would permit me just a, a question that takes us away from the United States. Because, for instance, when we, we learn about Christine Jorgensen uh, and the surgery that she underwent uh, someplace in Europe. I don't remember now if it was Denmark, Denmark. or Sweden. Denmark, yeah, okay. Denmark. Uh, but uh, it, 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 it prompts me to ask uh, to what level was, for instance, much of Europe far ahead of us here in the United States when it came to understanding this reality uh, and 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 opening doors for 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 such people who who uh, who were transgender uh, to to be able to affect their transition and 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 so on and and to what would you we maybe attribute that that greater and quicker openness to this reality? Um, well, so first of all, I would say that you know the sort of the questions you're asking about Christine Jorgensen and why. You know, this person who, you know, for your your um, your listeners who might not know of her, she was really the first globally famous transsexual person in the early 1950s. Uh, she is the person, it's kind of like the Caitlyn Jenner of her era. 
that uh, through her, a lot of people became aware um, of, of, you know, transgender and transsexual issues. Uh, and she was, you know, just I mean, a truly global phenomenon in 1952, 1953, and really sort of stayed in the public eye for about, um, you know, a decade, a little more, more than a decade before, you know, she sort of started, you know, becoming um, less famous. Um, but that when she, she was from the Bronx, um, but she was of Danish American heritage, and when she learned that you know there were genital surgeries and hormone treatments available to people like her in Europe, she went to went to Denmark um, and uh, received medical treatment over there. But that the idea of um, uh, all transgender people being what we would call medicalized, you know, like feeling like what they need to do is take hormones and alter the shape of their body with, with surgery. You know, that's just sort of a small subset of all of the, the transgender people uh, that, that there are. Um, that being said, in Europe, um, mostly in Germany, uh, there was just a lot of, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was a real hotbed of um of biological sciences, to the early development of endocrinology, um, you know, that it was just something that was, um, I mean, you know, Ger- Germany was a, you know, a powerful, culturally, you know, rich culture, and that uh, there was just a, you know, in, you know, an amazing higher education system, an amazing medical scientific establishment. And that, you know, it, it was just something that um, research into these topics was just something that, you know, grew out of the whole, you know, the whole milieu. Um, um, one of the things that changed in Europe, and, that, and you know, that I'll, I'll back up a little bit and say that there wasn't a similar kind of um, uh, attention to these issues in the United States, um, that it was m- more often that trans people were just, you know, treated as, you know, mentally ill, uh, as morally degenerate, um, doctors um, trying to, you know, work with, with trans people. It wasn't to sort of like support their idea of who they were to themselves. It was to diagnose and condemn and psychiatrize and treat and lock away. And it's like it was not, um, not a happy time for trans people in the U.S., in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, in Germany, um, in particular, there was this one Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld who ran uh, the Institute for Sexual Science. Um, very interesting character. He, um, um, Adolf Hitler actually called him the most dangerous Jew in Germany because like, not only was he a Jewish intellectual and doctor, he was also a socialist and he was also gay. Um, and he was he founded um, the first um, modern homosexual rights movement, uh, and he was you know a very good ally to trans people. It's like he helped um, arrange some of the first hormone treatments and surgeries that were available to trans people. If any of your listeners have seen the Danish Girl, the film, that's um, a very fictionalized, not historically accurate film about the life of someone known as Lily Elba, 
but Hirschfeld was the doctor in Berlin who kind of helped arrange the real-life Lily Elba's um, um, medical treatment. So, you know, there was, you know, there was just a, a lot of um, um, medical support and non-judgmental provision of medical services to trans people who were looking to change their bodies somehow up through the Nazi takeover. Um, so, you know, all of that kind of comes crashing down in, in Germany in, you know, 1933. Mm. Um, and then I would say after World War II, you know, it's like there's a very different political climate, you know, not just in Europe, but in the United States. And you start to see more um, attention being paid to, uh, to trans issues in the later 1940s. It wasn't necessarily positive attention. You know, some of the earliest um, accounts that I have found from that post-World War II period, um, experiments going on with hormones and surgery to quote-unquote change sex come out of um, government-funded attempts to address what you know, they were calling... Um, wanting to discover the causes and cures of homosexuality. Um, you know, it's like if you can, like, give hormones to some, you know, man who, like, is attracted to men, does that make him, like, you know, less sexually active? You know, does it change his sex drive? And it was in the context of, you know, what I would actually call a eugenic, you know, interest in trying to eradicate homosexuality that you start to see some early... Um, you know, early state-funded attempts to develop what, you know, becomes transgender medicine over the course of, you know, the decades ahead. Hmm. Um, you know, but trans people who are, like, looking for ways to live their bodies the way that felt right to them, like, they would find out, you know, like, where, you know, some of these new, you know, hormonal and surgical practices were being developed and they would seek them out and use those practices for their own purposes, you know, rather than what, what, you know, the state or the doctors might, you know, might have been intending. Hmm. So trans people have, I think, always, you know, kept their eyes open and like tried to figure out, um, um, you know, what's available for them to like live the way that, you know, they would prefer to live. Hmm. We're speaking with Susan Stryker about her book, Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution. The book has just been released in a second edition. Uh, one of the most interesting and poignant portions of this particular chapter in which we're, we're talking right now, uh, called A Hundred Plus Years of Transgender History, is when we explore uh, the matter of social networks at a time when they did not exist at all in the way that they exist today and in the way that we completely take for granted today. And of course, that would be one aspect of, of, of let's call it the plight of, of the typical transgender person in the middle of the 20th century, is you didn't have uh, avenues like Facebook and other, other means by which to connect with others experiencing the same sort of thing. And social networks then in a sense, had to be built the old-fashioned way, the slow way. And, uh, and, and under these circumstances, I should think it would have been especially difficult. Uh, tell our listeners about a woman, I'm sure uh, many of them 
had not ever heard of. I, I certainly did not know the name Louise Lawrence before reading uh, your book. Tell us uh, who she was and what she did, particularly when it comes to this matter of building social networks for the transgender community. Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. And you know, and thank you for you know pointing out how how much social networks, you know, online social networks have really changed, you know, changed the world really. You know, that I actually remember, um, I'm old enough that, you know, I remember before the Internet, and uh, I just remember that huge impact, you know, once you had web browsers um, in the early 90s. Um, for previously really isolated trans people to, um, you know, to, um, to find each other and to connect, I mean, that was really politically and socially transformative. You know, I, I remember when... I was getting started in the trans community myself. It's like we still communicated with each other the old-fashioned way by by pen and paper and by making zines that we would, you know, photocopy and mail to our, you know, to our lists. And you know, different trans groups in different parts of the country would, you know, exchange publications with each other. But that old-school paper-based way of communicating in the trans community is really something you can see happening decades and decades earlier. And this California woman, Louise Lawrence, was really crucial to that. She's somebody who we know transitioned from living socially as a man to living as a woman in like 1941, 1942, um, and that she was constantly like reading the newspapers and back in the day you know if somebody was arrested for cross-dressing because that was a crime um their name and address would be published in the newspaper uh, you know so their friends would know their employers would know people would lose jobs over this um but louise would you know write a letter to that person and it'd be like hello person just arrested for cross-dressing i um you know, I'm like you, and you know, we should uh, we should meet. And she developed this correspondence network of hundreds of people um, over you know over the decades, um, and that based on those contacts that she made, it's like she was also in touch with medical service providers, people like Alfred Kinsey at the Kinsey Institute, and people at um, uh, University of California, San Francisco's medical campus, other University of California researchers um, from UCLA, and the network of people that Louise pulled together became some of the earliest transgender people that, you know, scientists and you know medical people interested in transgender issues started to study, like people who were interviewed by Alfred Kinsey for his, you know, his you know, big surveys on, on human sexuality or some of the first transsexual patients and medical programs uh, kind of came out of Louise's network of people. So pulling, pulling together that network was, you know, in many ways um, foundational for what has become the transgender community in North America. Um, some of the one of the, the very first publications for trans people uh, was their subscription list was built on Louise Lawrence's correspondence network, um, and that was a publication uh, put out by 
another trans woman in Southern California by the name of Virginia Prince. And Prince is kind of uh, controversial in trans communities because she had a very um, a very rigid idea of like who was trans and who was not. And uh, for her, she was interested in heterosexual men who cross-dressed and sometimes who then sort of went on to live full-time um, as women without ever having genital surgeries and, and whatnot. So like that was what Virginia Prince's notion of transgender was. And she could be very hostile towards gay people and she could be very hostile towards, um, uh, towards trans people who wanted to have genital surgeries. Uh, so, you know, she was, she was not a trans person for all trans people, but she was nevertheless very, um, influential in starting to publicize trans issues and to build, um, you know, to build a kind of national infrastructure for trans people getting to know each other, uh, through her publication, Transvestia, which, as I was just saying, grew out of, um, grew out of Louise Lawrence's earlier correspondence network. Hmm. We can read about both of these women and also uh, the aforementioned Christine Jorgensen, who for many Americans uh, was one of the first uh, people they came to encounter via the media uh, with uh, her very public uh, transition, which really made headlines uh, all around the world. Your book goes on to talk about uh, some of the means by which the cause of, of trans liberation uh, really uh, took flight in the 1950s and, and 1960s. Uh, because our time is beginning to grow short, I actually want to leap over that, if we may, to your chapter called the, the Difficult Decades, which I think is especially fascinating because it talks about in a sense, some of the political backlash that was generated by some of the inroads made, and in particular by the often very difficult relationship that existed between the transgender community uh, and the and the sort of mainstream of the women's liberation movement. Uh, for for people who have not read much about this or are too young to remember any of this, uh, just sketch what was sort of at the heart of that sort of disconnect and discord between these two movements uh, at, at 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 the at that time in the early nineteen uh, seventies. Yeah. Okay. Well, the first thing that I would want to say is that you know I I think the women's movement and you know, the feminist movement of the later 60s and 70s was, you know, profoundly important. You know, it's like I consider myself a feminist. Um, and I don't want to characterize feminism as being, you know, sort of intrinsically transphobic. Uh, there was, in the early 70s, you know, a kind of transphobic feminism that emerged, but it was not, you know, I would say it was not ever the mainstream. Uh, but the the position that develops at that time was, you know, basically, you know, the, the feminist position was to sort of say, you know, gender is this system of oppression. You know, gender is this system that, you know, holds holds half the population down and sort of leads us to to, you know, prioritize men over women. 
Uh, and so gender is something that we need to liberate ourselves from. Um, and kind of in that, in that framework, uh, transgender people were seen as people who were not overthrowing gender. It's like that they were sort of, you know, investing in, you know, particular, you know, stereotypical gender roles, um, you know, rather than trying to free themselves from them. Uh, for a lot of women like, who who felt wounded by by what you know society can do to women, you know, who you know had you know had kind of received you know messages about women being of less worth or um, being a woman was something that made you vulnerable to assault or sexual violence. That for people who who had a I would say a wounded relationship to femininity. Um, or who had been wounded by it, that um, the idea of somebody who they thought of as a man claiming that they were a woman without having shared the experience of what it was like to have, you know, been a girl and to come up, you know, as someone who was vulnerable to, to sexist, you know, violence, um, uh, you know, it just really rubbed them the wrong way. It was like those people, you know, can't, you know, know what our life is like. And, you know, I would say, you know, that's true. Like everybody's, everybody, no, nobody gets to pick how they come into the world. And, you know, people are different from one another and people have different experiences. And, you know, so for me, the the challenge is to like, you know, acknowledge, you know, the, the ways that, um People who were assigned female at birth and raised as girls can have a you know really different experience um, than people who were assigned male at birth who identify for whatever reason as feminine. Like I don't particularly, I would not claim that because I always felt about myself the way I have always felt about myself that I therefore um, you know share experiences with other women that I that I don't share. Uh, the question is. Is that the only way? Is there only one way to be a woman in the world? Um, so anyway, the, in the early 70s, there was an active movement on the part of some feminist-identified people to expel trans people from feminist and women's movements and organizations. You know, there was a, a, a witch-hunting and scapegoating of trans people. Um, you know, that was, that was very real. Um, you know, I think it, you know, that the people who were doing that, they were coming from a place that, you know, they felt very righteous and justified about. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it was, I think it was wrong. I think it was divisive. Um, and I think it, like that, I think it was scapegoating. Um, because trans people need a different kind of liberation from, the gender system, you know, that um, you can be socially oppressed because you're in a system that, you know, divides the world in two and says, you know, one is better than the other, or you can be oppressed by the gender system because it divides the world in two and you don't fit into either one of them. And, you know, if you believe that those the division of the world into men and women is something based on, you know, nature and biology. That's just how it is. That's reality. Um, and you're trying to move between those social categories. You know, it's like you get treated as, 
you know, crazy or mentally ill or deluded or whatever. And, you know, that's a different kind of um, oppression to have to, to fight back against. So, you know, in my opinion, which admittedly is a very partisan position, uh, you know, I think feminism needs to be big. I think it can include all kinds of ways of addressing the injustices of the gender system. Uh, you know, there is a room, there's room in it for a trans feminism. And, you know, it's, it pains me, you know, when people that I would want to think of as my allies perceive me as an enemy. Um, so anyway, I, I do tell that story about the emergence of um, conflict um, uh, in feminist and gay liberation movements over trans issues. Um, you know, it, if you look back into the 1960s, there was, I think, more common cause in some some sectors of you know different social movements. More, you know, what gets called intersectional politics. Uh, and in the 70s. Um, Trans issues really kind of fall off the radar screen of gay liberation and feminist movements. It's, you know, it's perceived as something that's not part of those movements, even though they, you know, the, the trans, gay, and feminist movements, you know, all emerge from from very similar places. Yeah. I want to mention, although I'm, I'm afraid we don't have time to, to talk about uh, either of these people, but this 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 whole chapter includes a couple of fascinating stories of, of fascinating people I knew nothing about, including a, a transgender singer by the name of Beth Elliott, whose story is so fascinating, and also the story of someone named Lou Sullivan, who uh, grew up right down the road from where our radio station is located <laughs> in Milwaukee, and, uh, and uh, his story as a, a transgender person is is quite fascinating as well. I think, however, our last two minutes would be best spent with you summarizing uh, the most recent developments in transgender history, in, in, in particular the kind of things we read in this revised edition that would not have been part of the book in 2008. At least briefly, uh, what what is the, the, the new material uh, worth exploring in your book? Well, since we have only two minutes, I will just say that um, I think you can't divorce contemporary trans issues from the really, you know, big, deep national conflict, conversation, whatever you want to call it, that we are involved in right now that can kind of be summarizes the difference between the Obama years and the Trump years. You know, that under the Obama administration, trans people won some really significant victories. Uh, and it seemed like we were, we were, you know, headed in a very sort of good direction in terms of, you know, sort of civil rights and visibility and social inclusion. And that has just turned 180 degrees in the, over the last year. And it's just really striking to me how much trans issues have become a litmus test for where we are as a nation. There are, it's a flashpoint in the culture wars. And, um, you know, it's just like it's to me, you know, because it's how I live in the world. It's like it's something that I just can't get away from, from like think, thinking about acting on what it means to be alive and trans today and to be engaged in a really frontline struggle for the sort of the basic you know, ability to like be 
alive and work and have a family and feel like you're part of the society that you live in. It's like it's really hard to be to be targeted. Um, so, um, you know, hopefully this book, Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution, can be something that gives people information, grounding, um, um, a sense that we come from... Um, struggle in the past and that we've achieved a lot and that the um, the fight for our rights is not over, you know, that it's, um, it's something that is very much at risk and at stake right now. So hopefully this book can be part of that big national conversation we're having. The book again now in a new second edition is Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution, published by Seal Press. Uh, Professor Susan Stryker, thank you so much for writing this important book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. You're very welcome. Glad to be here.